This is the Journey 66 Book Writing Podcast. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Getz, and we are your road trip advisors. You may be at mile marker one and just thinking about an idea for a book, or maybe you've gone off-road in your writing and you want to restart the journey. Join Dave and me as we help you buckle up and write. Polygamous Daughter by Anna LeBaron, and you might mistake it for a piece of fiction, but Anna's story is a memoir which tells the story of being the daughter of the notorious polygamist and murderer Ervil LeBaron. Ervil's criminal activity kept Anna and her siblings constantly on the run from the FBI. One endorser of the book wrote, it reads like a taut suspense novel, only Anna's story is terrifyingly real. One difference between forgettable and memorable memoirs is the author's mastery of storytelling. Memoirs are story, and to tell a great story, you must employ all the elements of fiction writing, plot development, conflict, character development, dialogue, setting, and undergirding all of that must be a compelling message that moves the reader to deeper understanding. If you're interested in writing a memoir that grips people like the polygamist's daughter does, you'll want to pay attention to what Anna shares today. We are going to delve into how Anna developed her memoir through traditional storytelling techniques. Thank you, Anna, for being here today. We're so happy to have you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. And I am excited to share my secrets with your audience. Yes, that's great. (laughs) I know we're all going to learn something wonderful. So we want to get into the discussion of your book. And before we ask you pointed questions about your writing process and how you approached writing your book, can you just help our listeners who haven't read your book understand what the story is about? We've talked a little bit about it in the introduction, but you could give a much better short overview than I could in that one statement. In a nutshell, um, my family of origin was a source of a lot of distress in my childhood. I endured a childhood trauma, abuse, neglect, and abandonment during the 13 years that I lived in with my family of origin. And as you mentioned, we lived on the run from the law because my father was a criminal and uh, he was a polygamist. He had 13 wives and fathered 51 children. And so we lived a life of lack. We abject poverty dumpster diving for food, dumpster diving in the Goodwill boxes for clothing. And it was just a a life that no child should have to endure. And yet that is exactly what I endured growing up. I ran away from home when I was 13. So spoiler alert to everybody who decides (laughs) to pick it up. At 13, I ran away from home and uh, through just a series of events that can only be described as divinely appointed, I was uh, enrolled in a little Christian school and then began a decades-long journey to freedom. I grew up not knowing who my father was. I met him for the first time when I was nine years old. Oh my gosh. And only spent time with him twice that I'm aware of. And so I talk about those events in my book because they were so significant in my, you know, little childhood mind. Last month, it was 40 years since my father passed away in prison. And I ran away the the following year. So I'm curious, Anna, when you decided that you needed to tell your story, and was it because you needed to work through some of the lingering issues? Or is because you really had already worked through it, and you wanted to provide hope for people who were 
had similar kind of traumatic situations in life or felt disconnected from family, I would love to hear when you decided you need to write your memoir. Well, I've known for a very long time that I needed to write it. I've been sharing my story publicly since 2007. And every time I would speak and share my story, people would come up to me afterwards and say, do you have a book? Do you have a book? You know, like it it was like, oh my, oh, oh, uh, no, I sure don't. And then I would joke and say, yeah, in all my free time, I'll write a book. At that point, I was a single mom with five kids working a full-time job and, you know, speaking about once a month and sharing my story with audiences. And so one time I finished speaking and I was greeting people at the exit as they were leaving. And I was holding a stack of books that had been written about my family. I had a few of them right there and, and, and on the table and I was holding one of them and a lady came up pressed a $20 bill into my palm and tried to take the book from me, thinking that I was selling the books and that that was the book I had written. (laughs) And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. Here, have your, here's your money back because this is, these aren't for sale. This, I didn't write this book. It's just a book that had been written about my family. But it was at that point that I realized people are like just putting money in my hands. (laughs) I need to get this done. And it was still many, many years later that I actually began writing the book. I started speaking in 2007, and I started writing the book in 2014. And how many, how long did it take you to complete it? I don't recommend my methods to anyone. (laughs) I started in 2017, I mean, 2014, and the book was released in March of 2017. And we turned in the final, final, final edits in December of 2016. So a full three years. So as you wrote this book, was there an idea that you wanted to get across as you told told the story? Or or was your focus mostly, I'm just going to tell my story and let those ideas unfold as part of the narrative? I would say that it was probably the latter. But the most compelling thing for me was there has already been a big stack of books written about my family, as we talked about earlier. The adults in the, in the cult, many with hor- horrifying stories to tell. So obviously they needed to tell them. With all the salacious details, all the salacious stuff that people want to talk about and that are super curious about when you're talking about a fundamentalist Mormon cult that I was like the one I was born in. But The missing key ingredient to all of that was there was no books written from the perspective of the child Mm. born and raised in that environment Mm. and the impact that has on one's life. Mm. And so I, I wrote the story and in my own mind, I put blinders on and I allowed it to unfold in a way that until I knew something, my readers didn't know. I, Mm. I kept information. I did not talk about the who killed who and who did what and who married who and which wife and this and that and the other. I didn't talk, talk about other people's stories. I just wanted people to experience my life from my perspective and, and see and hear and understand what I knew. So, you know, there were 28 to 38 people killed that my father ordered the hits on. And I did not know that was happening when I was a child. Hmm. I was outside the cult. I had run away from home and I was about 15 when I, when I realized what had been happening around me. And so my readers find that out at the same time I do when I'm 15 or so, I'm reading a book that had been written about my family that I discovered in a drawer, you know, 
it was mind blowing to me that people that I loved had killed other people that I loved. What's really interesting about what you just said, and I think we want our writers to take that away, which is you had a specific angle on the book, which was, I'm going to write this because there's other books on the topic. I'm going to write it specifically one from the, from the unique perspective of a child. And I'm not going to reveal things through flashbacks and foreshadowing that often you would do in a book like this, right? So one, one way to write a memoir like yours would be to start the book, let's say, when you're 15 and you realize that your father had ordered all those hits. You could have started that book like that. You did not. And so I just, I, it's just is really helpful to understand your perspective on that because that's, that it, goes to, it goes to the point that there's probably no one way to structure a memoir. And, and what you're trying to accomplish really shaped the decision of how you were going to lay out the story. Right. And that's really important. Thank you for, for saying that. That's a really in great insight. I have a question about, so you were doing all this speaking and your book was kind of an outpouring from that. Why, why did you feel like you needed to tell the story? I, I know that you want, wrote the book because people were asking for it, but what do you think it is that people wanted from you that you could tell them and you could provide for them with your words? My hope for the book and what, what people would come to me with is in sharing your story, you give courage to others to share their story over and over and over again. As I would share my very distressing, heartbreaking story with people and, you know, the amount of time you're given when you're speaking to an audience, 25, 35 minutes maximum is not even enough to even break the surface of all that's there. And so the, the thing that happened over and over again as people were leaving is people would lean into me and say, I've never told anyone this, but da-da-da-da-da. And they would share heartbreaking stories with me of the things that happened to them in their childhood. Mm-hmm. And they felt like there was somebody on planet Earth who could finally understand the depth of their suffering, that I was a safe person, that they could whisper these things in my ear. And so sharing a story like mine, it emboldens people. Mm. And I talk about my my healing journey because it took decades of of therapy for me to heal. Mm. And I talk about my first counselor um, when... um, when I first went to professional therapy for the first time ever, and I spell out for my reader that I was with that counselor, deep diving into all the pain and suffering that I had bottled up inside me, that I spelled it out that we were together for five years wow. before I finally cracked, fully cracked open that mm-hmm. deep well of suffering. And I just what, did not have access to my emotions. Yeah. And this counselor very patiently, very kindly and lovingly and compassionately and empathetically just waited and walked me through that process of healing. And so I also wanted my readers to understand that if you've been through something significant mm-hmm. and significantly painful, the healing process is not a, you know, one, one and done you know, six steps to whatever, 
when you've experienced the kind of suffering that I've been through, the healing process is, is long and slow. At the beginning of your book, you mentioned that you, in a sense, fictionalize some of the, the, uh, the dialogue and the setting and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And, and there's no way to write a memoir without doing that, right? Because you just simply don't Correct. have access to all those memories. There was a, a section I was reading where there's just a lot of your, somebody's talking and then it's, it's back and forth. You can, it's almost like a, like a, a script for a, for a movie. So how did, how did you write that? And did it take you a while to learn how to write this? Because this is your first memoir. How did, how did you come yeah. to that? Well, here's my uh, secret that's not, a secret. On the front cover of the book, it says The Polygamous Daughter, a memoir, Anna LeBaron with Leslie Wilson. Because, because I did not have book publishing, you know, in my repertoire and a writing, like a long-term writing experience, when my agent contracted me, she said, well, I'll only work with you if you will hire a professional editor to work with. And so we, we found the right editor to work with. So the way the process went with her, and, and I highly recommend anyone who thinks, well, I have a story to tell, but I'm not a writer. You don't have to be a writer. You don't have to be a writer. So what the process went was I wrote the story. I wrote out all my memories. They got them all on paper and captured all of them on paper and then edited a little bit. Then when Leslie and I, started working together. We did three sample chapters for my book proposal. You know how it goes, right? (laughs) So we worked together and the way we, the process that we did was she read what I had written. And then as she would begin the editing process, she would call me and we would get on the phone and she would record our conversation. And we would talk about what happened in that chapter. I would retell the story for her and she would capture the nuance of my voice, of my tone, of the emotions that were part of it. She captured all of that. And then she took what I had written. And I say that I wrote the bones of the story and Leslie put the flesh and blood on it and made it come to life. So then she would write and she would write and edit what I had written. I wanted her to have credit on the front cover of the book for having helped me with this edit, you know, this, we call ourselves collaborative writers because she didn't Mm -hmm. ghostwrite, but she was a collaborative writer. We worked together in this process. And when she would go and write, as she would write the dialogue and scene and those important components of a memoir, because that's not a skill that I have, she would write those and she would, she called what she would use her, imagine the scene in her mind. And then she would write what she thought based on what I had written and what we had talked about and how I had told the story to her. And then once she would give me that chapter that she had edited and helped me with the important components that needed to be part of it, my sister and I, who you met in the book, her name is Celia, she and I would go and everything that wasn't correct, we would edit and correct the details, correct the tone, correct the, oh, she used this word, this one's better, because we wanted it to be an accurate portrayal of the events that happened. And yes, we did not have, you know, recordings of everybody's dialogue. You know, there's, there's no no way to recreate that. But 
I wanted to write it in the spirit in which the events took place. So there was really almost three steps to the writing of the memoir. You laid down the first tracks. Mm-hmm. Then there was the editor who kind of fleshed out the some of the scenes and dialogue. Mm-hmm. And then there was another editing phase where you went through and in a sense, not just buffed it, but corrected and buffed mm-hmm. it and shaped it. Yes. Um, that's actually a really good model, I think, for people who want what you would call not a ghostwriter, but a professional editor to help shape the words. That is a very authentic way of writing a memoir, especially when you add the name of the, of the professional who assisted you on the cover. That just gives a lot of authenticity to the, to the story. Well, I, I wanted her name on the cover because the kind of work that she did and the way she contributed, um, I, was, I wouldn't be able to replicate that if somebody asked me to. So I was like, nobody asked me to write this type of writing again, because without her help, it won't happen. I wanted it to be authentic and for people to know that that wasn't just me and that I couldn't have produced that without her help. We work with a lot of authors who do um, have ghostwriting done, and there is a credibility issue that they struggle with. They think, well, I really didn't lay down these words. And so they remove themselves even further from the ghostwriter because they, they can't admit to their peers or whoever that they really didn't have much yeah. to do with the actual writing. So I think it's actually really admirable of you to, to give credit <laughs> In, that, in this moment and to say it takes, it takes a team really to bring a book to life. And even if you are doing the majority of your writing, we talk about this developmental editing phase with our writers where you do get an editor and saying, you know, you need to really rethink how this is structured or you need to think through maybe the phrasing of this. It doesn't sound quite right. So there is such beauty in collaboration like you are talking about. And mm-hmm. to give yeah. credit is a real gift, I think, to people to just realize, you know, I can't do this on my own. It's not a solitary monastic act. And then the other part is um, it, when I really am honest, I'm more of a speaker who happens to write than a writer who happens to speak on occasion. My favorite is speaking. I love podcast interviews because I can go on and on and on. That's also a difference. When you started writing and you actually just started writing, did you, how did you, how did you start? I'm laughing because how I started is actually a funny story. I had been so overwhelmed by the immensity of this story. I had no idea where to even start. I had, I had started, you know, a Word document over and over and over, get a few sentences in. And then it's just like, I don't even have a clue what's next. <laughs> and that happened for years. I just had no idea what to do. I went to a writer's conference in uh, January of 2014. And the, the little ad for it said, you know, if you come to this writer's conference, you'll leave with a working title for your book. You'll leave with, you know, chapters and sub sub chapter ideas and, you know, content to keep help you with the writing process, a website, this, that, the other, all these promises, you know, and they just said, if you'll engage in our process, this is what you'll leave with. And I was like, take my money because <laughs> I have no idea what I'm doing. So I went to this conference and, you know, sat Thursday, all day, Friday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Saturday night, I went to bed late. And when I woke up Sunday morning, they had laid out a plan for 
if you write this many words per day, this many days a week, you know, you'll have your manuscript in about a year. So I thought, okay, this is, I'll, I'll do this. I'll finally do it. So I woke up Sunday morning and I thought, I'm going to start tomorrow. And that voice was like, no, start today, start today. And I just froze in fear, like, oh my gosh, I'm going to face the page again and not know what to write. Well, as I was thinking in my head, you know, I don't even know where my laptop is and I have a roommate and I don't want to wake her up and it's early in the morning, it's still dark. And this image in my mind flashed about where my laptop was, where I had set it down the night before. And I was like, okay, you really want me to get up and start today? So I got up and sure enough, my laptop was right where I imagined it had been laid down the night before. I walked out of the room quietly. And as I'm going to the little common area so I can begin, I remembered that I had written a blog the summer before. And in the blog, I had told a little snippet of a story about my childhood. And I thought, I'm going to just copy and paste that blog into my Word document. And there's going to be my words for the day. Like (laughs) I will have done, I'll, I'll be done. And the words was like, it was 500 words a day, four days a week or something like that. So I was like, oh, hopefully there's 500 words there because I had never looked at word counts. That had never even occurred to me to count them or know or what. So I went, got my blog, copied and pasted into the Word document. And there was like over 1400 words, which, you know, that's a long blog by today's standards. And I remembered that I had just kind of typed it out real fast and read, read it, hit published. And then, you know, the kind of, I do the kind of blogging where you hit publish and then you reread it and find all the mistakes. So you go and edit real fast. That's, that's kind of how I work. So I copied and pasted it, found those 1400 words and was astounded. And for the first time I thought, Oh, I can do this 500 words a day, four days a week. Oh my gosh. For the first time I felt hope that I could actually get it done. So then I decided to just remove everything from that page that wasn't the story about my childhood. And there was like 400 and something words. And I thought, all I have to do is write down all my memories. This was one memory from a childhood. And if every day I just write one memory from my childhood, and that's how I got started. That's such a great, encouraging story, because what you're articulating is you just have to start. and. Also, just looking at what you have done in the past, that's such a great source of encouragement. If you have done writing, take a look at what you've done. And if it didn't feel that overwhelming, it doesn't have to feel overwhelming in the future. I I love that model. And you just plugged away at it. And to think in terms of memories, Mm -hmm. rather than having to construct a narrative and all that, that you broke it down into real bite-sized kind of chunks. Was there a moment in this writing process where you hit a low point, like, man, I can't finish this book. What did I get myself into? And how, how did you persist through that? Or was it pretty much once you had that idea, I'm just going to tell memories. It was smooth sailing the entire way. No, there was just re-experiencing all of these things that happened to me. I made sure that I was in the care of a licensed professional therapist. Yeah, right. While I was in the writing process. So weekly, weekly meetings with my therapist um, helped me through that. There was, there was one day I was writing and in this, in the story, I tell about a man that I call Raphael. That's not his real name, but I, I changed a lot of names to 
protect not just the innocent, but the guilty. And I, I changed his name and I had not thought of or seen or heard of or anything of this man in so many years, except, you know, in just retelling stuff with my siblings or whatever. And the day that I was writing about the things that happened to me in Mexico, when I was living with him and his family, I happened to open up and see a Facebook post that from somebody that was his, it was his daughter. Somebody in my family was Facebook friends with her, and she happened to post a lot of pictures of her childhood, and a picture of this man pops up. I had not seen this face in decades. At first, it was re-traumatizing to see that face because of the things that happened. And then I thought, what a gift I will be able to describe him perfectly. Wow. Wow. Not just relying on my memory. Yeah. But it was, it was a very distressing moment when that image popped up on my screen where, you know, I was reliving the events that took place. All of that, the, the trauma that I experienced and being re-traumatized by it in the writing, that was the part that I had to persist through. And of course, doing it with the care of a professional therapist. I think that's really great insight for people who are wanting to write a memoir, especially when you're talking about traumatic things that it's going to dredge up some stuff that you're going to have to redeal with. And I think that that's really wise advice is to care for yourself during the process. You did say something about protecting the innocent as well as the guilty. And we get so many questions from our writers about how do you hide the identities of people and, and why do you do that? And so what is your thinking about that? I want you to explain why you're even hiding the identities of the guilty. That was interesting to me that you said that. Well, it's because this man no longer is no longer living. Mm-hmm. However, his daughter is. And I didn't want anybody to be able to identify her through the names that in the book. So I changed his name, his wife's name, the children's names to help protect her identity yeah, because she doesn't deserve to suffer for the things that her father did. It's not just the person, but it's all the people that are associated. Yeah. With yeah. That's- and there, there were so many people in my family as well who did not want their names used. And so as many as, as many as possible, I contacted and said, if I'm not going to use your real name, do you have a name that you would prefer I use? You know? And in some cases I didn't get a response or I did get a response and they didn't care. So I, you know, created names for them. But I, you know, there's, there's so much public information about our family that if somebody was a public figure and their name was splashed across all the news headlines over and over again, then I used their real name, especially if they were no longer living. So many people in my family died that many of them were no longer living. And I got permission from people to use real names, especially when the circumstances were just really difficult or tender or heart-wrenching. You know, I didn't want to, I didn't want to exploit my family in a way that they felt like, you know, because for many in my family, we've had our story told and splashed across the headlines over and over and over again. For many in my family, it's re-traumatizing every time somebody else writes another story. And for many in my family, they felt that same way and they distanced themselves from me in the part, in the idea of me writing the story, they felt a need to distance themselves from me. And I understand that every time another book came out, came out, went before I was prepared, 
to tell my story. It was like a gut punch, just having to see the headlines again and over and over. And so I understand that that need that some of my family members felt to distance themselves, to create that safe space between us. And I understand that they did it out of self-care, compassionate self-care for them, for their own hearts, not because they were upset with me for telling my story, because most of my family members were very supportive of me sharing my own story. One last question. In a book like this, there's a lot of salacious scenes, arguably, right? With the multiple wives and how young they were when they got married. And so I think in memoir writing, there's always that dance between telling the story, but not over sensationalizing it and making sure you don't, you're not too graphic and you're almost understating things. How did you walk that line between telling the story, what happened, while also not being too salacious and making it almost tawdry? Oh, I understand exactly what you're saying. And that was something that we thought about multiple times in the writing process. How do we tell this story? How do we describe the things that happened without leaving images in the mind of the reader that would haunt them? I did not, I did not want that. And so I told the stories as, as carefully as I could, still being true to the things that happened, still sharing the, the difficult emotions that I experienced and the events that took place that, that shaped and formed who I became, but also really having a thought in my mind about the reader and how triggering some of these things are for some readers who've experienced this kind of trauma, abuse, neglect, and abandonment. It was a fine line. Well, this has been incredibly helpful, like Dave said, and I would love to get you back on the podcast because I was searching around your Instagram feed and just you you do social media coaching, it sounds like for for Mm -hmm. authors. And so I would love to have you back on to just talk about that because you are a wealth of knowledge in that area too. So thank you so much for just being so open. And Dave, I don't know about you, but I feel like I pulled out at least 10 fresh ideas. Your insights being in the trench of writing like this, really rich. I'm always so happy to be able to serve other uh, aspiring authors and writers because I know where I was in that process of thinking I needed to write this book and I had this book inside of me that desperately wanted to come out and I had no idea where to start or even begin. So um, helping others is just, um, I'm an Enneagram too, so you know, I'm a helper. <laughs> so being able to do that and it's just a joy. It's part of my healing journey. Well, we're going to let you off in just a minute, but Dave and I want to share our words of the episode. So Dave, I'll go first. Okay. All right. My word is crenellated. And this comes from Annie Dillard too. I guess we're on an Annie Dillard kick. Who knew? So, and it means having rows of squares, like notches along a castle wall to allow archers to shoot. So you can see it, right? It's those, you know, it's like the castle. So say that again. What is it? It's having rows of squares, like notches along a castle wall to allow archers to shoot through the arrow. So, you know, you can picture it, right? It's like the little, there's little notches through the kind of the peaks. And so 
Here's a couple of examples in sentence. The archers use the crenellated walls to shoot at the enemy. That's the more obvious one. And now here's Dillard using it in a real metaphorical sense. The cars are descriptive, at least. The car's tires laid behind them on the snowy street, a complex trail of beige chunks like crenellated castle walls. Like who would have ever thought to use crenellated in that way? So it's a new word to me. So that is my word. Annie Dillard is full of those words. Yeah. She's so wonderful. What a, what a great writer. She definitely is in my top two or three writers. So my word of the episode is facile. Now this is a common word, right? But there was a while in which I don't think I used it correctly, but it has to do with this idea of, of success in sports, specifically something that's easily achieved or effortless to somebody. So it was a facile victory, meaning the football team totally crushed, you know, the other team. It was just facile. It was just an easy victory, right? So I, I'm using this in terms of my daughter, Jalen. I have a 13-year-old daughter. And the other night she said, hey, dad, she said, um, can you come and help me? I've got Minecraft downloaded on my computer, but it crashes every time I open it. And there's a, an error message that comes up. And I said, okay. So I popped into her room and and I'm on the computer. And so I'm right away, I, I start to Google. I go, okay, what's the error message? Let's Google it and find some videos to help us fix it. She goes, dad, I've already done that. <laughs> I said, what? Yeah, I already did that. So I said, okay, but I'll go do it. So I went through it and I, there was a couple hacks and I, I tried to fix it. It means going into your settings, going into some code. You're almost, you're not writing code, but you're stitching some stuff in and it just didn't work. And so I said, Jay, I'm so sorry. I, um, but I want to tell you, how fast I didn't use the word facile, but I would use it now. I'd say, gee, how facile you are with technology yeah. and problem solving. I mean, think about this. A 13-year-old girl, she has a problem. She sees the error message. She Googles it and watches a bunch of videos and can't fix it. So then she comes to me <laughs> and I can't fix it. So last night I went into her room. I say, Jay, again, this was two nights ago that I tried to do this. I said, Jay, I'm so sorry I wasn't able to fix it. What are we going to do? How do we get Minecraft working again for you? She goes, she said, I had to drill down into Google and I found a couple other videos. I found one that worked and I fixed it. Yes, facile with technology. That I know I feel the same way about my kids. And Anna, do you feel that way about your children and grandchildren? Yes, yes. My, my grown children are my technical support for sure. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but for uh, for your for your listeners, an easy way to remember the word facile is if you speak Spanish, like I do, I speak fluent Spanish. Um, the word facile is means easy in Spanish. Facile. So facile is easy. There you go. An, another word of the episode. Thanks for another word, that. a Spanish <laughs> word of the episode. Spanish, I think that's our first. All right, Dave, before we say goodbye to Anna, you want to tell our listeners what they can find when they jump on the Journey 66 website? Yeah, just jump on the site and we have a couple things that you might be interested in. One is a quiz. You jump on, it's actually on the homepage, first thing you see. And if you're at the beginning of the book formation process, like Anna was talking about, trying to where do you start and what's the idea of your book, especially if you're writing a nonfiction book and you have this idea about what you want that book to be, We have this little quiz that kind of walks you through some questions. And then you get this tool, which we use a lot with our nonfiction writers, which talks about breaking down an idea into a thesis and uh, into a thesis, which has two parts. It has a subject and a complement. 
And, and it's a little activity that kind of breaks your idea down and just helps you give focus and clarity. So that's what you get when you take the quiz. So jump on the website, journey66.com and take the quiz. Awesome. Well, again, thank you. Well, I think I'm going to go, I'm going to go take that quiz right away because I'm in the process of writing a second book. Awesome. awesome. Yeah, so a- I am definitely in need of that. <laughs> that activity. Well, you have to let us know if it helps you out. Yeah. And if it doesn't, you, you let us know too. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks again, Anna. I think that that's a wrap, Dave. I'm Melissa Parks. And I'm Dave Getz. Now buckle up and write. 